This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host on this channel. Today we'll be speaking with Christy Thornton, author of the book, Revolution in Development, Mexico and the Governance of the Global Economy, uh, published in 2021 with the University of California Press. Christy is an assistant professor of sociology and Latin American studies at Johns Hopkins University. Christy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Thanks so much for being here. Could you begin by sharing how you came to this project? And given that we're on the Latin American Studies channel, too, I'd love to hear about the ways that different disciplines have shaped your work. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So um, I came to the topic of studying the role of Latin American actors within international financial institutions sort of because of my political commitments. Um, Some of my earliest kind of most formative political moments were during what we called the global justice movement and the aftermath of the Battle of Seattle. Um, I was in college when that happened and um, it seemed really urgent at that moment to try to figure out why the international financial system, um, institutions like the World Bank and the IMF um, were so unfair, right? And so weighted against the needs of the developing world at the time. And so um, I was really interested in that in college. Um, I wrote a senior thesis about the history of World Bank poverty reduction programs. Um, and then I left the I left the academy and I worked for a bunch of years um, at NACLA, the North American Congress on Latin America, um, before I came back to grad school. And when I got to grad school, which was the PhD program in history at NYU, um, I was really interested in kind of studying the history of development through these institutions, but I didn't think I would study Mexico. Um, I'd actually never been to Mexico when I started my PhD program. I had previously lived in Argentina and worked in Cuba and El Salvador. Um, And so I really thought that I would be going back to the Southern Cone as I started to study sort of um, classic Latin American developmentalism. I thought that I would kind of get into the history of institutions like the Economic Commission on Latin America, ECLAC or CEPAL in its, in its Spanish acronym, um, study Argentine or Brazilian or Chilean development thinkers. Um, and then a kind of funny thing happened as I started to do initial research about the role of Latin Americans within international institutions and international negotiations, Mexico kind of kept showing up. Um, So the first and most obvious place for me was thinking about the history of the Bretton Woods Conference. And that's a kind of pivotal moment in the book. Um, And it's uh, the curiosity for me was why Mexico gets invited to play such an important role at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, which is where the World Bank and the IMF were founded. Um, People may not realize, but um, the, the Bretton Woods Conference is kind of organized into three different commissions one headed by Harry Dexter White that um, is meant to set up the International Monetary Fund, one headed by John Maynard Keynes, the famous British economist, um, to negotiate the World Bank, and then a third commission on um, other means of financial and international economic cooperation. And that commission was given, the sort of chairmanship of that commission was given to the Mexican finance minister at the time, Eduardo Suarez. And so I was like, you know, why the heck is Mexico being asked to sit at the head of this table on which the, you know, post-war international institutions are going to be framed? Um, So that was a kind of initial question for me. And then um, I found references in secondary literature to anxieties about Mexico's role during the founding of the League of Nations, um, which was a story that I had never read. You know, no, no one had ever talked about Um, Mexicans being in Paris during the Paris Peace Conference and sort of what they might have wanted. And so I got interested in that, going all the way back to sort of the earliest international institutions of the 20th century. Um, And I just kept finding little kind of tidbits like that. And so I I ended up studying Mexico. I ended up first going
going to Mexico um, during my PhD program, um, doing initial research and finding, in fact, that, um, you know, from the side of Mexican history, there is a great deal of interest in Mexico's role in international affairs and international institutions. There's a kind of nationalist history about Mexico's international role. Um, And so those things really combined for me. um, And I came to study um, the role of Mexico in these broader international economic negotiations and institutions. Um, And you're right to ask about the sort of different disciplinary formations, because um, certainly uh, you well know, um, Latin American history has so long been focused on um, our, the kind of methodological imperatives of both social and cultural history, right? Really thinking about um, histories from below and everyday people and really displacing the kind of elite state actors that I look at in this book. Um, And so I I had some anxiety about that, about, um, you know, studying with some of, you know, our foremost sort of social historians um, and looking at these these international institutions and these state actors. Um, And so that part of my disciplinary formation definitely comes from the more kind of social scientific side of me. Um, You know, my my earliest work was in um, political science. I have a master's in international affairs, and now I teach in a sociology program. So the book really does combine um, sort of Latin American history international political economy, sociology of state building and global capitalism um, into what I hope is a cohesive package of thinking about the role of a country like Mexico in those kind of broader international economic and financial institutions and negotiations. Could you highlight for us um, the big takeaways that um, your book uh, should leave readers with for a Latin Americanist and maybe a particularly a Mexicanist audience, how do you hope that this book is going to shift conversations in our field? Wow, that's a great question. Um, there are a couple big takeaways for the book, and there are definitely different audiences. So, you know, thinking about Latin Americanists and historians of Mexico, I mean, one of the important things that this book does um, when it comes to the historiography of Mexico in particular is it kind of refuses the temporal and chronological straitjackets that we have created for ourselves in this field. Um, In the history of 20th century Mexico, there is definitely a kind of bright and sharp dividing line between um, the revolutionary period and the post-revolutionary period, right? And most people draw that around 1940, um, the transition, the end of the Cardenas period, and the kind of move into um, kind of more traditional state developmentalism that Um, takes off with Avila Camacho and Aleman and then going forward. Um, So the book kind of weirdly for a book of Mexican history um, begins in the Carranza period, um, the period sort of immediately in the consolidation of the revolution um, when Venustiano Carranza becomes president, um, particularly in the era of the 1917 constitution um, and goes actually all the way up to the cusp of the 1982 debt crisis. Um, So that to me, um, that is a a kind of something that I think makes this book stand out in that it crosses those periods. It's kind of trying to look at the Mexican post-revolutionary state and ask about both continuities and changes over that period. Um, And so a great deal of the book does um, sort of focus on the period before 1940, but actually kind of the most important activism that the Mexican state takes on, and and we'll talk about this, um, is actually during the 1940s all the way up to 1948. Um, And then there's a shift in the 50s and 60s and a kind of reclamation during the 70s. So um, for me, that kind of chronological imperative is an important thing that comes out of this book. Um, Thinking more broadly about the kind of big takeaways here, um, beyond the historiography of Mexico, um, I really wanted to join a growing conversation about the role of countries like Mexico in the world. Um, You know, there is a kind of vibrant subfield within history of thinking about the United States in the world, kind of picking up from traditional diplomatic history and applying some of the lessons of social and cultural history to that. Um, And so there's a kind of subset of us who have been thinking about, um, instead of the United States in the world, the role of various Latin American countries in the world. So this book very much um, sort of situates itself in that field, um, a sort of Mexico in the world book. And, and in that way, it asks, how should we understand 
the power of and the influence of these poorer, weaker, um, deader countries in in the global economic order. Um, the kind of received theoretical frameworks from international political economy, from international relations theory, um, from world systems type sociology, um, really discount, I think, in a lot of ways, the idea that a country like Mexico could be influential to how the global order was shaped. And so one of the big um, kind of imperatives for this book to me is to ask about the kind of multi-directional flows of influence and expertise that really shape how the more powerful countries, especially the United States, um, exercise that power, right? So one of the things that I talk about a great deal in the introduction um, is I think that we have a kind of received idea of a world in which a country like the United States acts and countries like Mexico react Right. And so the idea that Mexico could in any way be a kind of driver of historical change um, is something that has been underexamined. And so that's a big thing that this book tries to do. It tries to write Mexico into a history of international economic governance, of international institutions, and to ask how it is that we should study and think about the role of these poorer and weaker countries within these kind of broader global frameworks. So um, to me, what that means is kind of understanding U.S. hegemony, not as a kind of steady state top-down imposition over the over Latin America and the rest of the third world um, in the 20th century, but in fact, kind of understand how hegemony is built through contention and negotiation, right? So I really draw from the work of the anthropologist and historian Bill Roseberry, who argues that we should understand hegemony not to, be, or we should study hegemony not to understand consensus, right, but to understand struggle. And so for me, uh, I really came to the book trying to understand or wanting to ask what it is that Mexico was trying to accomplish, what it was able to do, and why and how um, its kind of particular paths forward get foreclosed, right? Instead of just understanding that, you know, the United States is a powerful, um, you know, a, a kind of world historical power. Capitalism is an all-encompassing system. And so we should expect the outcomes that we got. No, I think that we actually need to study why these systems came to look the particular ways that they did. Um, and by turning to um, the countries of the formerly of the third world of Latin America, I think we can begin to understand those processes a little better. So the structure of this book, the way that I, I think you're trying to do this, is that you focus on historical development, on key moments when Mexican actors were seeking to influence the ways that international financial institutions worked. Um, and you do that over the course of the 20th century, as you've laid out for us. So before we dive into some of those moments, could you talk to us a bit more about the main characters in this story, uh, who of course change over the course of the book, but a little bit more about these economists and diplomats and thinkers that you're writing about and how they are sort of privileged, but then also marginalized in depending on sort of what context they find themselves in. Yeah, that's a really important point. So, um, you know, one of my anxieties being trained by these kind of giants in the field of Latin American social history who study workers and peasants and everyday people um, was precisely that my actors are within the context of Mexican and Latin American history, right? These kind of very elite, well-educated, you know, often educated in the United States or Europe, Um powerful state actors, right? Mostly white, mostly male, people who have access to state power and who exercise it over the course of the 20th century. So when it comes to kind of Mexican and Latin American history, the people that I'm studying are in no sense subaltern, right? They are in no sense kind of marginalized voices. Um, but repeatedly what you find um, in looking in the history of these international economic and financial negotiations and institutions um, is a real sense of derision and dismissal toward these people because they are Mexican on the part of, for instance, European and U.S. Um, negotiators themselves. So um, there's this really interesting moment. I, I came across this incredible document in the British National Archives um, about the role of Mexico at Bretton Woods. Um, this British Treasury Department official um, writes a memo about how the U.S. has included too many Latin Americans in the Bretton Woods discussions, right? There are just, you know, of the 44 countries that go to Bretton Woods, fully 18 of them are from Latin America. And so the British 
are looking at this and saying, what the heck is the United States doing? Why are they inviting all of these Latin American officials? And this one British Treasury official writes this memo where he says, you know, it's ridiculous to think that the Mexicans or the Brazilians could participate at the same level as the Belgians or the Dutch. Right. And so there's a kind of racialized understanding of the fitness for participating in these high level international financial talks um, that I think subsequently pervades how we have understood this history. Right. The dismissal by historical actors of the agency and importance of the Latin Americans, the third world actors here has then come to be the kind of tone and the assumption that subsequent scholarship uses, right? So when when Keynes is very dismissive of the Mexicans at the Bretton Woods Conference, subsequent historians, um, you know, IR theorists, they look at the Bretton Woods Conference and they say, well, obviously Keynes didn't think the Mexicans mattered, so clearly they couldn't have mattered, right? And so sort of... Um, breaking through that the kind of condescension of 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 posterity there um to say like look these people were in fact they had very sophisticated ideas about how the international economy should be organized um and how it needed to be changed they presented those ideas very persuasively they frequently had real influence over how actors in the united states and europe thought about those ideas um that is one of the really key things that for me, um, going back to these actors makes important the kind of paradoxical place that they occupy, even though they are um, highly educated and elite state actors within their national contexts, they are still very much dismissed within the international context. And so the book really tries to um, demonstrate where um, where those kinds of prejudices were operative and how they then get written into our subsequent understanding of this scholarship in order to try to push back against that a little. So let's move to talking about more specifically some of Mexico's interventions in both hemispheric and global conversations prior to World War II. So can we say that some of Mexico's ideas that were being um, proposed during this time were ahead of their time in some way? Yeah, so um, I really take up from the work here of um, my colleague Eric Haliner at the University of Waterloo, who's written really extensively. He's one of the foremost scholars in international political economy and international relations who's written about the kind of influence of global South actors. And he he wrote this incredible book um, uh, about Bretton Woods, the Bretton Woods Conference, and the way that in, in his estimation, um, the Latin American actors were a kind of important audience for the United States. So I, I wanted to sort of look at that idea and figure out, okay, if the United States was paying attention to Latin America at Bretton Woods in a way that, you know, previous scholarship had not understood, what is it that the, what that these Latin Americans actually wanted? And so, um, as I said before, when I went back and I started to do the archival research here, I in fact found... Um, a long history of the demand for the kinds of institutions that we would understand today as being the institutions of international development, right? Um, and so that is another big revision of this book um, that I join people like Haliner and others to argue that, in fact, development um, as an international project emerges as a demand coming from Latin American and third world actors, right? So rather than thinking of it solely as a kind of technocratic imperialist imposition from above via the creation of institutions like the World Bank and the IMF, I think instead we should see it as um, a response to the demands that had been being made over decades by um, representatives of states like Mexico. In Mexico's case, the kind of particular reason that they pursue the sorts of agreements and institutions that they're interested in has to do with the way that Mexico is excluded from the international financial system in the kind of pre-war period. So one of the um, consequences of the Mexican Revolution, right, is not only a kind of mi a million people dead and displaced throughout the country, sort of massive economic devastation. Um, in the course of that, a great deal of private property gets destroyed, private property owned by foreigners in Mexico in railroads and mines and agricultural property, etc. Um, and a great deal of foreign debt gets repudiated. So the Mexican revolutionary state and then post-revolutionary state um, 
because they repudiate debts that came from the period before the Porfiriato and debts that are incurred in the midst of the revolution, um, they then spend the next few decades, really from the 1920s forward, trying to negotiate a way back into the international financial system. Because they've defaulted on these debts, right, no one will lend to them. And that's a really interesting, it puts Mexico in this really interesting and different place than some other Latin American countries during the 1920s. Um, Economic historians will know that um, there is this period in the 1920s that we refer to as the dance of the millions, when speculative capital during the boom in the United States, um, after changes to the U.S. banking system um, with the creation of the Federal Reserve Act in the 19-teens, capital starts to really pour into Latin America in these highly speculative, kind of highly fluid ways that then after the 1929 crash, right, there is a kind of bust that follows this boom. And so that moment of the dance of the millions, the kind of pouring of capital into the region is something that Mexico doesn't experience because it is still um, sort of excluded from international financial markets. Banks, private banks won't lend. um, They can't get bonds secured on the international markets. And so that exclusion of Mexico from the international financial system really shapes how the economists and diplomats and political figures that I study, um, how they approach these international economic negotiations, right? They come to negotiations over um, sort of internal democracy within the Pan-American Union, Um, over the question of how countries like Mexico might be represented at the League of Nations. And then in these kind of specifically economic um, negotiations that happen within the Pan-American Union at various international um, inter-American meetings, um, they really come with this idea, with ideas about international economics that are derived from their exclusion from international financial markets. So that's a really different context than we might think of as, you know, sort of much later in the 20th century when capital is really pouring into the third world. In the 1920s, Mexico is actually excluded from that kind of lending. And so what they try to do is create various kinds of systems that will allow capital to be efficiently and productively redistributed from the global north to the global south. Um, So they have these kind of twin pillars. And the two ideas that I sort of trace throughout the history of the book are um, representation and redistribution. So the Mexican state actors that I study, they want sort of equitable representation within multilateral institutions, Um, the League of Nations, the Pan American Union, um, later within the UN and the various agencies therein, they really argue over making sure that there is a voice for countries like Mexico, despite the kind of hierarchical imbalance of power. And so in that way, they're kind of arguing against a kind of naturalization of hierarchy in international relations. They're arguing for the sovereign equality of states within these international institutions. But they're also arguing for redistribution, for the creation of agreements and institutions that will allow capital to be channeled from those who have surplus capital in the North, right? Bankers in the North, the way that they're going to make money is by lending it out at interest and getting getting that interest back. So the bankers in the North who want to have stable markets to lend in, the Mexicans, particularly um, after the 1933 Montevideo meeting, right, they start to argue that there need to be new kinds of institutions that will allow the distribution of that capital in ways that are not unfair and speculative and damaging to the countries of Latin America and the broader global South, right? Having lived through the experience of the kind of speculative boom um, of the 1920s and then the massive bust that follows during the Great Depression, um, people like Mexico's foreign minister, Jose Manuel Puy Casarranc, come to the 1933 Montevideo meeting to argue for what he calls a new legal and philosophic conception of credit. And so he's really arguing that um, the way that credit has been, or the financial system and credit up to that point in the in the aftermath of the Great Depression um, had been distributed, had sort of made the credit form itself a kind of structuring factor in international relations. It had created these vast discrepancies between the lending countries, the creditor countries, and the borrower countries, and created um, this kind of massive political imbalance. And they wanted to right that imbalance by creating new institutions and agreements. One of the most important institutions um, is this thing called the Inter-American Bank, which um, my colleague Eric Kleiner has also written about. 
Um, and it's a forgotten institution, um, but it's one of the kind of most important um, demands that's made by Mexico and its allies in Latin America is for the creation of what would have been the world's first multilateral development bank. Um, it gets at the Mexicans and their Latin American counterparts really demand this bank throughout the 1930s. And by the time we get to 1940, people in the United States, including Treasury official Harry Dexter White, um, have really come to recognize that, yes, there should be some sort of multilateral negotiated means for distributing capital in this kind of equitable and productive way. And so the United States takes up the Inter-American Bank Project and negotiates it over the course of a year, um, a charter and bylaws are drawn up for it. And so there's a way in which um, it's a kind of incredible moment where the demands coming from Latin America, and there are some that are more radical than the ones that Mexico is making and some that are less so, but this institution gets created that is the first kind of development bank. And it comes from the demands of these Latin American actors. Um, What happens next is really important because even though the Mexicans and their allies have managed to convince um, important people within the U.S. government, the State Department, the Treasury Department, of the importance of this idea of a new multilateral development bank, the world's first. Um, They get stymied by the organized power of U.S. capital. And that happens through the process of ratifying the charter and bylaws of the Inter-American Bank in the U.S. Senate. Basically, the bankers um, make their voices heard through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the Senate Banking Committee, and they come to exercise what is a kind of effective veto over the creation of this new government-backed bank because they think that it's going to be kind of present unfair competition to the private banking sector. Um, And that's a pattern that's going to play out um, over the next decades as the book goes forward. Um, There are these important places where Mexican diplomats and economists and political leaders manage to convince U.S. government representatives of the kind of utility and sometimes even the justice of their ideas, right? They get the U.S. government representatives to kind of come on board with their demands. But in important places, right, those, um, the institutions or agreements that are created get effectively vetoed by the organized power of the U.S. capitalist class, bankers, oil men, foreign um, manufacturers, etc. Um, so the book, um, in, that, in that pre-war period, um, I do think it's really incredibly important that we understand that the institutions that um, frame what we think of as international development really come from this demand from from below, from Latin America and from Mexico. Um, But we also need to see the limits of that and what that looks like. Um, So the Inter-American Bank Project itself um, ultimately falters, but by the time that has happened, Harry Dexter White, the US Treasury Department is already working on the new global institutions. So this would have been an inter-American institution, the United States and Latin America. The US actors are already working on their ideas about the IMF and the World Bank. So Mexico will sort of pivot and ideas from the inter-American bank struggle will very much be foregrounded in how Harry Dexter White thinks about um, an institution like the World Bank and how Mexico pushes for representation and, and redistribution within those new institutions. So yeah, that period and the kind of lead up to the end of World War II from the 1930s to 1944 is this incredibly important push from below of a demand for development. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So as you explain in the book, all of this is critical because so many histories of um, or, you know, other um, other disciplinary takes on international financial institutions, they really focus on and sort of start the story in the post-war era. So maybe you could move to talking about that era and, you know, with these connections to the previous decades, 
um, you know, what exactly was the role Mexico had in shaping some of these critical institutions that would go on to bolster U.S. global power? Yeah, that's a really important question. So it's absolutely true that the kind of hegemonic story we have about the history of development, you know, makes it sound like um, development starts many, many histories of development, for instance, start with um, uh, Harry Truman and the point four program when the United States decides that it's going to do this kind of technical assistance program for the third world. Um, That happens in 1949. Others point to the creation of institutions like the World Bank, um, the Food and Agricultural Organization, etc. These kind of U.S institutions. So I definitely do want to demonstrate the kind of earlier roots of those institutions in the demands that are coming from a country like Mexico. Um, In the immediate aftermath of the war, there are a couple more really important negotiations that happen um, where the Mexican state um, really finds itself confronted with the power of U.S. capital in particular. So it's interesting because in the history of Mexico, right, we tend to make this shift and we say after 1940, the Mexican state becomes much more business friendly, um, becomes much more interested in sort of a traditional development program and much less interested in the kind of redistributive um, revolutionary program that was pursued, for instance, under the Cardenas period in the late 1930s. But when it comes to international institutions, in fact, um, one of the ways that Mexico is trying to really create and protect its national development program is through continuing advocacy for real radical reforms in international agreements and institutions. So um, I have a chapter about um, the agreement that happens when the United States and Mexico um, lead a meeting in 1945 that's meant to kind of kick off how Latin America will be incorporated into the post-war economic order. Um, That's the Chapultepec conference. And there's real Um, tension there because there are actors within the U.S. government, um, particularly after um, FDR dies and we kind of see the shift from the New Deal era into the beginning of the Cold War, who are arguing very staunchly for a kind of free trade vision of the U.S. relationship with Latin America and with Mexico. And both at Chapultepec in 1945 and then within the negotiations over the International Trade Organization in 1948, which happened um, over the course of the years leading up to that, but culminate in Havana in 1948, um, there is really strong advocacy from these Mexican actors that I study and their counterparts in other parts of Latin America and eventually the rest of the third world um, for a kind of more centrally planned, um, institutionally um, sort of embedded international economy. So rather than a kind of vision of a laissez-faire free trade world in, in the post-war world, which particular people from the United States are pushing, Mexico and its allies um, from Latin America and the rest of the third world really come forward and they say, no, there need to be these kinds of rules and institutions around trade and investment that um, preclude the kind of predations that had happened in the 1920s and 1930s, and that create new incentives for the actual development of a country like Mexico and other Latin American countries. So what that means is, um, you know, allowing protection for infant industries, creating price controls, having labor standards, um, building these things into the global trade and investment system. And so those negotiations, um, Mexico plays a really strong and very um, sort of forceful oppositional role to a kind of free trade U.S. vision at both Chapultepec in 1945 and at Havana in 1948 in a way that I think we don't remember. Um, And that's because what comes out of Havana in 1948 um, is in fact the agreement that's negotiated over the course of those long negotiations, this institution, the International Trade Organization. Um, It actually does, you know, Mexico's demands and the demands from countries like it, you know, together countries from all over the third world, and in fact, also countries like Australia, um, South Africa, um, the demands that they make actually effectively do reform the charter of the International Trade Organization um, in order to allow for development and protection of these new, uh, newer, um, weaker economies. 
Um, and so once again, as we saw in the inter-American bank context, right, this new instrument that is the charter of the international trade organization that actually sets up rules to be fair to the developing world gets defeated by U.S. capital. Once again, the ITO has to be ratified by um, the U.S. Senate for, you know, for the, for the United States to become a member. And once again, that does not happen. Here, it's um, Foreign Trade, Foreign Manufacturers Association um, that argue very strongly against the provisions that have been negotiated, demanded by countries like Mexico and its, and its allies into the ITO. And so um, there's an interesting way that this is one of the kind of chronological things that I think my book um, provokes, is a, is a provocation in the history of Mexico, because there continues to be this kind of um, oppositional activism into the late 1940s. Um, and it's, it's because it's about um, creating an international order that will um, allow Mexico to pursue the kind of state-led import substituting development project that it has begun to develop during that period. Um, and so in that way, I really agree with a historian like Vani Petina at, um, at the Colegio de Mexico, right, that Mexico's international actions in this period um, really come to be, the important thing is that they are in, intending to support Mexico's domestic development program. So one of the things that happens um, in as a result of that, is that um, once we get into the 1950s, the ITO is defeated, but Mexico negotiates a new trade agreement with the United States. Um, the World Bank actually starts lending to um, the developing world by the time we get into the 1950s. Um, and so there becomes a sense that kind of the way that the new institutions are working, despite the fact that they don't actually do everything that the previous generations of Mexican actors have demanded, right, once the capital actually starts flowing and the investment starts coming to Mexico, um, Mexican state actors become kind of very protective of this international system that they have spent the previous decades demanding and reforming. And so what we find in the 1950s and 1960s is in fact that um, Mexico kind of backs off of the sort of international economic and financial activism and demands that they had levied over the preceding decades. So particularly as decolonization really ramps up in Africa and Asia, and you begin to have these newly decolonizing countries arguing for more radical ways of structuring the world economy, the emergence of the non-aligned movement, etc., Mexico becomes a kind of defender of the existing status quo, of institutions like the World Bank and the IMF, um, of arrangements with the United States, um, within, for instance, the Economic Commission for Latin America at the UN, CEPAL. Um, Mexico becomes a kind of uh, conservator of the existing order. So we go from having... Uh, a state that had been a real champion of radical kinds of reform um, in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, by the time we get into the mid-50s and then in the 60s, um, the, these same Mexican actors, and in some cases it's actually the same people, um, are arguing that the way that the system has been set up has, is working for Mexico and should be defended. And so there are all these instances where more radical governments, for instance, um, you know, Cuba after the Cuban revolution, um, the Chileans under Salvador Allende, of course, the Algerians, the non-aligned movement, they're really arguing for a kind of overthrowing of the international financial system in the 1960s. Um, and Mexico emerges as a kind of defender, a kind of junior partner of the United States defending the system the way that it is. And to me, the explanatory factor there is because the capital has started to flow, right? So prior to the late 1940s, Mexico remained kind of shut out of the international financial system and was negotiating its way through. When the debts are finally negotiated after 1942 um, and Mexico negotiates a new trade agreement with the United States, um, by the late 1940s, you begin to see new investment coming from new capital really flowing from north to south into Mexico. So Mexico comes to really defend the system that has allowed that to happen. Um, 
And then, of course, there will be a massive crisis at the beginning of the 1970s that will destabilize some of that. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that. But um, there's this really interesting transition period where not at the moment that we might expect, right, not in 1940, once we move into um, the Avila Camacho era, but actually after 1948, after the defeat of the ITO and the idea of a Marshall Plan for Latin America, um, Mexican actors really become kind of defenders of the established development apparatus that, you know, while they didn't get everything they wanted, has come to actually work. Um, the famous Mexican economist Victor Urquidy says says something in retrospect. He says, the Bretton Woods system worked really well for Mexico. And the World Bank starts lending and capital starts flowing. And yeah, Mexico really becomes um, retreats from the kind of radical role that it had played previously. Uh, so following up to what you've just alluded to, in the 1970s, we see this kind of interesting moment. Um, Mexico is enjoying a lot of access to international credit. At the same time, um, it's taking a leadership role in calling for international financial institutions to better serve the interests of what was then called the third world. So we can kind of get the activism and the you know access to credit at the same time. But you also point out that this is, um, you know, this may be like an apex of, of some of the things that these thinkers have been proposing, looking for, for decades, but we're also, you know, just beef, this is the calm before the storm, before the 1982 debt crisis. So maybe you could talk us through these interesting decades of the 70s and 80s and um, uh, help us understand some of these processes. Yeah, so um, there are a couple of really interesting things that begin to happen in the early 1970s. Um, of course, you know, a kind of watershed moment happens within Mexican politics after 1968, the massacre at Tlatelolco, um, when, you know, hundreds of students are are killed and disappeared by state security forces. Um, that's a moment that really kind of shakes the Mexican political system, begins to destabilize some of the existing um, sort of social and political um calm that had pervaded in in many people's minds. Um, So once we move into the 1970s, um, a a really important thing happens in August of 1971, um, which is when the United States sort of what's called closes the gold window. They take the United States dollar off the fixed exchange rate that it has that gets set up back at Bretton Woods in 1944. So from 1944 to 1971, there is a kind of stable um, and um, negotiated uh, international exchange rate regime that the United kind of multilateral agreement. But what happens in 1971 is that the United States is facing kind of increasing financial pressure, um, you know, increasing economic pressure at home. And, Um, for a whole host of reasons that are not super relevant for right here. Um, President Nixon decides um, to to take the United States off of this exchange rate regime. Um, And that is really destabilizing for um, not only for, you know, the United States trading partners, but really for European economies as well. And so then the kind of rich countries get together and they negotiate a kind of new way to think about exchange rates. And they totally leave out the rest of the countries of the third world, the rest of the countries that were at Bretton Woods, for example, the IMF members of the IMF and the World Bank. Um, And so there's a sense that, you know, the U.S. had kind of set up this multilateral system, but then makes these unilateral decisions in 1971. Another unilateral decision that they make uh, is to levy a 10% import tax. And for Mexico, which has spent the 1960s um, really... Um, bringing its economy much more closely into relation with the economy of the United States. 1965 is the beginning of the border industrialization program, what we think, what we call the maquila program, the um, emergence of maquiladoras along the border. Um, In 1971, when the U.S. says there's going to be this 10% 10 import tax, um, it has the potential to be hugely destabilizing to the Mexican economy, right? The U.S. is, is Mexico's most important market, Um, And so Mexico really feels the need to stand up to the United States and say, you can't just do this unilaterally. You've created this multilateral financial system, and then you just come in and you kind of unilaterally turn the table over and and leave all of us kind of, um, you know, wanting. And so... um, But they also, you know, that reliance on the United States also sort of ties Mexico's hands to a certain extent. 
So what happens over the course of the next couple of years is this really interesting and very complicated negotiation um, by the Mexican president at the time, Luis Echeverria, um, who proposes a kind of new way of thinking about ordering the world. On the one hand, he has the United States, the European countries, um, the U.S. making these unilateral decisions about that are you know, intended to sort of safeguard its own economy without regard for anybody else. Um, on the other side of Mexico, you have the more radical states of the third world, the non-aligned movement, um, Salvador Allende's Chile, the Cuban Revolution, really arguing that the entire system has clearly failed, right? That the crisis of the 1970s shows that the way the international financial and economic system has been organized is a failure and it needs to be thrown out. There needs to be a revolution. Um, and so, you know, it should be completely overturned. And so Echeverria kind of emerges as a sort of mediator between these two poles, and he proposes this thing called the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States. Um, we tend to remember, and historians of the United States have written about the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States as, um, as a kind of unimportant part of the negotiations over what we call the new international economic order, um, which is you know, these, the negotiation in the 1970s from the third world to really argue for kind of overturning um, the existing uh, international financial order. But in fact, what I found in my research um, is that the proposal for the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States predates the call for the new international economic order and really is the mechanism through which um, this kind of mediation about the NIEO and between the United States and the radical third world states happens. So there are these negotiations from 1972 all the way up to the very end of 1974 over this instrument. And the charter actually is a pretty remarkable thing. It, um, you know, institutionalizes all of these kinds of rights and also responsibilities when it comes to the international financial order. So whereas previous um, UN declarations have said things like, you know, there's a right to um, nationalize subsoil resources in the developing world. There's a right, you know, people were calling for a right to development. Um, the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States really stresses not only that the poorer countries have these international rights to regulate um, multinational corporations, to nationalize subsoil, to, you know, have protective tariff barriers, um, but also that the developed world, that the rich countries have duties to them, right? That the international financial system, um, international economic system is a kind of interdependent whole and that it's not just that the poor countries have these rights to do things, it's that the rich countries have responsibilities as well, right? To sort of preclude um, the most uh, destabilizing parts of the international capitalist order. So Echeverria, um, undertakes these negotiations between 1972 and 1974 with a, a team of people, including Porfirio Munoz Ledo, who is still very active in Mexican politics today, um, to really create this instrument that is a kind of um, meant to, in many ways, kind of save global capitalism from itself. Um, the idea that, you know, if you could create the kind of right rules and um, regulations for how international trade and investment worked, you could finally get it to work for both the rich countries and the poor countries, right? Everybody's experiencing the crisis of the 1970s. If we can just create this new framework, it will preclude this kind of crisis from happening again. Um, and so, you know, the charter as it's negotiated is this really remarkable document. And Echeverria actually, you know, he kind of convinces the United States that they should come on board um, with the project, particularly people like Henry Kissinger, um, that they should come on board with the project because um, he is the thing that's kind of standing between them and, you know, many Vietnams, basically, you know, if, if that the model that Echeverria puts forward in the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States is not followed, you will have more Cuban revolutions, you'll have more Salvador Allende's, you will have more Vietnams. Um, and so, Echeverria really argues that he is the kind of, he's the person standing between the United States and kind of world revolution. And the charter is supposed to be the thing that is going to stave off that world revolution. Um, so the remarkable thing about the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States is that um, it gets passed in 1974 at the UN General Assembly by 120 countries. 
Um, and that the that the Mexican team really manages to convince people like Henry Kissinger, first Nixon, and then President Ford, um, that keeping Mexico happy with this charter is more important than what the charter actually says. So that, the, again, these government officials um, kind of go along with the plans, even if they don't like them. And then once again, as we saw previously, the organized power of capital, um, multinational corporations, foreign exporters, bankers, etc., really convince um, the United States government to roundly reject this. So in the vote for this document at the UN General Assembly, the United States and a host of Western European countries vote against it. So, you know, it passes the UN General Assembly, but it has no actual force because the most powerful countries in the world constituting, you know, the overwhelming majority of world GDP don't agree to it, right? Um, so. Um, I think that the moment is really illustrative of um, the way that Latin America should be thought of to be incorporated within these broader third world struggles that we tend to only think about countries like Cuba. Um, when we think about that, you know, when we think about the non-aligned movement, um, kind of broader third worldism, we generally wouldn't write a country like Mexico into that history. The Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States shows how central these Mexican economic ideas that really go all the way back to the 1920s and 1930s were to that moment of third world activism. Um, but again, as a kind of mediator between the most radical ideas and the intransigence of the United States and Western Europe. Um, and so I, I really think going back and kind of studying what happened in that moment, how those negotiations unfolded. Um, what the compromises were, and then ultimately how it was defeated by the organized power of U.S. capital um, is really illustrative for um, sort of contemporary questions about South-South cooperation, about international economic reform, um, and those kinds of things. So we talked a bit before about some of the takeaways from this book for scholars of Latin America and I wondered, you know, what do you hope that journalists um, either covering Mexico or covering topics in international finance might learn from your book? Yeah, wow, that's a really interesting question. Um, one of the things that um, I want this book to provoke is a kind of reconsideration, as I talked about before, of the power of countries in the third world during, you know, the establishment of these important institutions in the 20th century. And I think that that's important for thinking not only about the possibilities um, that they you know, that this history kind of reveals the way that Mexico successfully gets some of its ideas incorporated into new institutions, but maybe even more importantly for the limits, right? Um, and that's one of the sort of what I say in the conclusion of the book and kind of what I think of as a takeaway of this book is, um, you know, we see how far Mexico is kind of able to come in convincing U.S. government officials of the utility of its ideas, of, you know, putting forward ideas about a kind of interdependence and equity in the global capitalist economy. Um, and we can see how, you know, in, on a case-by-case -case basis, how they are able to make those arguments um, and find an audience among, you know, the most powerful U.S. actors, right? Um, but we can also then see how, in particular moments, when the Mexican ideas really fundamentally challenge the power of a particular sector of U.S. capital, whether that is bankers or foreign foreign manufacturers, um, investors, etc., um, that the organized power of those of the capitalist class is able to kind of rally and defeat these ideas, even if Mexican government actors have convinced U.S. government actors that they are the right and just ideas, right? So I think that that's really instructive today, um, you know, before, maybe before the Trump administration, before the coronavirus crisis, right? One of the things that we think about a lot, um, sort of outside the context of those two things is, is the question of kind of South-South relations and what it means for um, countries in the third, in the former third world, in the developing world, in the global South, um, to kind of band together and challenge some of the global injustices that they continue to face, right, in these international financial institutions, in the international um 
trading system, et cetera. And so I think that we should go back and kind of read this story for the lessons, as I said, not just of the possibilities, but really of the limits for seeing how the alternative future that, you know, the Mexican post-revolutionary state wanted to bring into being, how was that foreclosed exactly? How was it defeated? Um, what do those defeats look like? I think that we can take real lessons from that. And I think that it um, perhaps serves as a little bit of a cautionary tale for some kind of more romantic visions of what South-South cooperation um, can, can achieve, can accomplish, right? Putting it within this broader context of the kind of global political economy, thinking about what I think is really an undying dream of the idea that we could achieve actual development, you know, equitable, authentic development. Um, if only we could fix the rules of global capitalism, right? If we could give it the right kinds of rules and regulations, global capitalism could finally be made to work for both rich and poor countries. And I think going back through this history shows, you know, where, um, Attempts to do that have succeeded, but also where they've failed. And I think that those failures should, yeah, should be a cautionary tale for thinking about these things today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, before we wrap up, I'd love to hear about some of your new research directions. What can we uh, look for you some, you know, sometime down the line? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm working on two projects right now. I mean, I'm working on a whole host of things that have been put um, really on hold because of the coronavirus crisis. As, as you know, um, archives in Mexico have been closed for nine months now. Um, I don't know when I will next get back to Mexico to be able to do more research. I've done some preliminary research. Um, I'm really interested in the relationship that emerges in the 1970s between um Luis Echeverria in Mexico and his administration, um, which, you know, within the Mexican context, when we think about who Echeverria is, um, probably the most important thing is thinking about his role as a kind of um, repressive state security figure, right? We think about the massacre at Tlatelolco when he was the interior minister. We think about the Halconazo, the Corpus Christi massacre in 1971. We think about the kind of dirty war in the countryside. Um, and so thinking about Luis Echeverria as this kind of third worldist champion, um, even as he's repressing uh, Mexican dissent at home, I'm really interested in how he in the relations between Mexico in that moment and Salvador Andes Chile. So sort of picking up from the work that somebody like Tanya Harmer does about, um, you know, Salvador Ande and the inter-American Cold War, um, the, the kind of transnational relationship about internationalism and third worldism between Echeverria and Allende is something that I'm really interested in. So um, that's a project that I got to do a little bit of preliminary research about um, and that I hope to be able to get back to someday when the archives reopen. Um, in the meantime, I'm, um, I'm writing a book about another interest of mine, um, which is something that I teach a great deal about here at Johns Hopkins. Um, and that's about the drug war. Obviously, um, you know, if you have lived in Mexico in the last decade or so, as I have, um, the drug war is a kind of omnipresent, um, aspect of people's lives there. Um, and so I became really interested when I was living in Mexico in thinking about the drug war, um, you know, on a political front. Um, and then when I got here to Hopkins and I got to teach about it, I teach a class called um, Political Economy of Drugs and Drug Wars. And one of the things we do in that class is to try and understand um, the international drug war, right? What we might think of as like U.S. security assistance, um, the U.N. conventions about drugs, et cetera, um, and the domestic drug war, right? The questions about um, mass incarceration, about racist policing in cities, about the opioid crisis, about deaths of despair. Um, I'm really interested in asking how we can put those two things in a single frame, how we should think about the drug war as a kind of unified um, undertaking of the U.S. state, right? So both the security assistance and militarization abroad, and then kind of questions of racist policing, surveillance, um, and um, the political economy of how that works here domestically. So um, that's probably the thing I'm going to work on next because it requires um, hopefully a, a little less 
um, or it will have a, a little bit less disruption in the coronavirus era. <laughs> um, so those are the two projects that I'm working on now. And um, I'm, I'm really actually looking forward to um, getting into the research about the drug war book and, and really um, bringing some of the terrific insights of my students, the students that I've taught over the last few years here on this question about the, the sort of intersection between the domestic and the international, which is, again, the thing that really um, motivates all of my work. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Both of those are certainly works that I'll be looking forward to, and I'm sure other listeners will be as well. So today we've been speaking with Christy Thornton about her book, Revolution and Development, Mexico and the Governance of the Global Economy. Christy, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me.